Welcome to the Freshman Foundation Podcast, helping you make the jump from high school athletics to the collegiate level and beyond with your host, Michael Huber. Hey, everyone. It's Mike Huber, founder and CEO of the Freshman Foundation and certified mental performance consultant. If you're listening to this episode, then you're likely a student athlete or family member of one. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Hopefully you find our podcast valuable. Mental performance coaching allows young athletes to show up at their best every single day by conquering distractions, pressures, and mental roadblocks through evidence-based strategies. So let's talk. You can visit my website at michaelvsinvincenthuber.com to schedule a free strategy session. Let's see if mental performance coaching is a fit for your family. Enjoy this episode, and thank you again for listening. What are Dr. Travis Dorsch's best principles for youth sport parenting? Like you, I'm a youth sport parent. Even the most enlightened parent can have a difficult time doing the right things for their kids when it comes to sports. All of us want the best for our children, but sometimes our actions don't exactly align with our intentions because emotions get in the way. My guest on this episode, Travis Dorsch, is Associate Professor and Founding Director of the Families and Sport Lab in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at Utah University. He is also a former Division I and professional punter and place kicker. In Episode 32, Travis shares his best principles for parents who want to put their children in the best position to succeed in sports and life. He shares some very personal stories to illustrate how he came to embrace this field. I'm excited for this conversation. Let's build your foundation with Dr. Travis Dorsch. Hey, Travis, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Uh, It's great to have you here. I guess the first question I'll ask you is, what inspired you to get into the sports psychology field? Yeah, really uh, kind of a lifelong story, actually, you know, whether I knew it or not. I mean, I think I was always sort of being groomed to go that direction. Um, always a youth sport athlete growing up, a number mm-hmm. of team sports, some individual sports. When I ultimately went to Purdue in the, in the late 90s for my undergraduate degree and to play football and baseball, um, I was a developmental psychology major. And, and I, as my degree path went on, as my sport career went on, as an intercollegiate athlete, I kept thinking like, where is the intersection of these things? Kind of who am I? We always, you know, we always think about that in college or we should be thinking about that in college. And, uh, you know, sort of the, the intersection of being an athlete, uh, being a son, ultimately now being, being a father. And I was, I, I just became really interested in sort of the dynamics of family involvement in youth sports. And that was uh, ultimately when my NFL playing career was done in 2005, when I came back to grad school to pursue my master's, Mm -hmm. that was ultimately the direction I went was, was to focus in on, on the psychology of sport and exercise, recreation, physical activity. Um, but really with a focus research wise on families involvement in that and how families are shaped and, and change over the course of a young athlete's career. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's something that, that we have in common. It's something that I'm very interested in. And this is my second career. Uh, I started it much later than you did, um, in terms of, you know, our ages, but yeah, that was one of the reasons why I get into it. I have children and I'm surrounded by youth sports and I, I saw a lot of things that maybe didn't make me so comfortable. And so trying to understand why 
things happen the way they do and how can we make them better? Sounds like you're sort of in the same boat, but I didn't know that you were a baseball player as well at Purdue. So tell me about that. Like, what was it like to make the choice to be a two sport athlete? Like, what was that experience like for you? I mean, that sounds like a lot of responsibility to, to hold onto your plate. Yeah. I mean, you know, back to the recruiting phase when I was a senior in high school, um, you know, I, I tended to think of, uh, as a high school athlete, baseball as my sort of first love, my passion, um, you know, w- what I wanted to do. Football seemed to be, as I got through my career, what I knew was going to end up paying the bills. Um, basketball was maybe what I had the most fun at, just out there with the guys uh, ripping up and down the court. And then track was just something to do in, in my spare time. So, you know, as a four-sport athlete, I really had a lot of diversity across what I was doing, a lot of different teammates, different coaches. Mm-hmm. I think that kept me fresh every season to really be locked in and engaged with whatever season was happening at the time. But I knew it was kind of a, it was kind of a non-negotiable when I was going to make the college decision that I wanted to play um, baseball and football. Um, and of course I was being recruited mostly through, through football programs. And then and, and of course, trying to work with the baseball coaches, um, to kind of figure out if I had a home there as well. And that really helped mm-hmm. me narrow down, uh, during the recruiting process where the universities were that I, that I had an opportunity to go. So look, landed on Purdue, um, no regrets. I absolutely loved my time in West Lafayette and in the big 10 and, uh, and was really blessed to play for a football coach. Uh, who allowed me to play baseball in the spring and, and have a baseball coach there at Purdue, Doug Schreiber, um, who who obviously knew that first priority was always going to be football, um, and, and I'd be there when I could. Yeah. So who was your coach at Purdue? Coach Tiller? Joe Tiller, yep. And he was cool about you playing baseball? Uh, yeah, I mean, at least at least outwardly. I mean, I think again, <laughs> it, was, it was it was sort of sort of a non-negotiable, I think, for me at the time, mm. you know, at the time of recruitment that I wanted to at least try and pursue both. And and I only ended up doing it for my first two years after my, you know, my freshman spring and then my sophomore spring. Uh, and then once we got around to my junior season, again, sort of seeing the writing on the wall, seeing that, look, the pathway to becoming a professional in baseball is a lot longer and more tedious than it is in football. Mm-hmm. Um, the talent was starting to emerge more in football. So, so focused on that my final two years. Uh, and that was a smart decision, I think. Got an opportunity to go play um, in the league for for a few years and, and over mm-hmm. in Europe for a few years after that. Very cool. Um, were you always a punter kicker in high school or did you play other, other positions? Yeah, I was actually um, – I started uh, – as a freshman, I was a quarterback. Um, and then sophomore through senior year, I was a wide receiver. Um, and I, I played wide receiver on varsity. Some defense, not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, obviously the, the cream rose to the, to the top with the kicking and the punting, and that's where the scholarship offers came in. Uh, I did have some offers uh, as a wide receiver as well, but to smaller schools. You know, big guy, six, six, five and a half. Wasn't, you know, I didn't blow anybody off with my 40 time. So um, I would have been a possession receiver type guy had I chose to go play wide receiver. And, and I was a solid wide receiver, but, but to get to the big time programs, I knew that the kicking and punting was going to be the ticket. Well, as a kicker and punter too, you have a unique body type. I mean, almost six, six, six. I mean, you don't see a lot of kickers that, that size. So in terms of generating power, I had to imagine that was a huge advantage for you. Yeah. It's funny. You know, my, <laughs> I, I wish my old strength coach was on here because we became best friends the minute I arrived on campus. Um, <laughs> I came in at, uh, I came in at six, five and about 175 pounds. I mean, I was a stick coming out of high school, um, super athletic, just not, you know, hadn't matured into my body yet. And uh, in, in about a year and a half, by the beginning of my sophomore year, he had taken me to six, seven, 235 pounds. 
So <laughs> I'm not sure if they were trying to turn me into a tight end or what. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we, we spent a lot of time together in the weight room. We spent a lot of time together at, at training table, you know, folding mm-hmm. peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and, and ordering 11 p.m. pizzas. <laughs> I mean, but that's a, that's a pretty good segue, though, I mean, because that's just sort of a that's like one example of what it's like to go from high school to college, right? In terms of, you know, not only the physical um, demands of it, but the mental and emotional demands. What was the transition from like for you from high school to college sports and just college in general? Yeah. I mean, that's a, you know, it's a unique question. I think everybody is an in of one in some respects, like for me, a small, small town kid coming from, you know, Montana out to the Midwest, you know, landing in a spot where I'd never spent much time, uh, Indiana was very different. And I think the hardest mm-hmm. thing for me, I started as a true freshman. So there was no sort of red shirt acclimation period. It was like, I'm on campus training camp for three weeks. And then I'm in the LA Coliseum playing my first game against USC wow. on August 31st in 98. And, you know, I, I recall, I recall that not affecting me so much. I mean, athletes, they do what they do. The right. hardest part for me, I think was the, the social, the emotional, the being a long way from home around new people, a different culture, uh, in some respects. So the homesickness, I think, really, really struck mm-hmm. me that first semester. Um, yeah, so I think there's a lot of things to consider, you know, whether a kid is in-state, out-of-state, even international, uh, whether a kid is is close to home, has a has a social support network around them or not. One thing that Purdue was great at is, is you always felt like family. And there were, you know, there were families in West Lafayette, the athletic family on campus, the administrators on campus, and even mm-hmm. some professors. And of course, my teammates that you know, that, that take you in and that make you feel at home. But still, that first semester transition was really hard. Mm-hmm. I got great advice uh, from from one of my confidants that I, you know, that I shared with. She was one of our academic um, advisors there on campus. And I, I broke down and I was crying in her office saying, I can't mm-hmm. do this. I got to go home. And, and she sat me down and she said, just get to Thanksgiving, you know, just get to Thanksgiving. And, uh, and so I did that. And, and then the football season's over. And then, you know, we're, in, we're preparing for a bowl game. And, just get to Christmas, get to Christmas. And then after the bowl game, you get a, you know, get home for a couple of weeks before the new semester starts. And I think then it started to settle in that, okay, this is, this is my new family. This is where I want to be. And things are, things are trending upwards. So it's hard, man. It's really hard for, yeah. for athletes, especially because there, there's really no you time, you know, especially two sport athlete. It's, it's, it's 24 seven, right? When you're yeah. not sleeping, you're either in class or you're at your, at your sport activity for the day. So yeah, I, I think it's a double-edged sword. In some respects, it's a really good thing. And in some respects, it's hard because there's no time to really even acclimate. Yeah. I, it's interesting because I, I was, I, my career ended at, at the end of high school and I was a three-sport athlete. And then I went to Michigan State and I grew up in Long Island. So I had the same experience in the sense that like the culture in the Midwest was completely different from where I grew up. Right. And then you're going to this massive university and you don't know anybody, you don't have any support network. And I didn't have the athletic family, right? I didn't have the athletic network. And you just like, well, do I really belong here? And I remember going home at Thanksgiving that first year, just being like, oh, thank God, (laughs) you know, like I get to go home and like feel comfortable again. But it was the same thing after that first year, it was like bumpy. But then after that, you just settle in and, and, and it becomes, you know, your second home. And it sounds like you had a great experience at Purdue, which which is always good to hear. Not everybody has a good experience in college. Yeah, absolutely did. Although I remember a game in East Lansing. You might have even been there. I think it was uh, <laughs> the 2000 season when, when we ultimately ended up going to the Rose Bowl with Drew Brees, and we had a great, mm-hmm. great squad that year. And uh, we're, we get down to the final two games, and we're leading the standings. We're a game ahead of Michigan, a game ahead of Ohio State, and I think a game ahead of maybe Northwestern. 
and uh and, and we we're going to east lansing who was they were not great that year three and six mm-hmm. maybe or something like that and it was yep. just one of those kind of dreary november cloudy spitting rain and we just yep. laid an egg in that game and uh, we lost in east lansing um only scored 10 points i think it was it was ugly and we we got it uh-huh. in the locker room and on the plane ride home and uh fortunately the teams that we needed to lose behind us lost behind us and then we went into our our final trophy game the last game of the year against indiana only needing to win um to to get to the rose bowl and we did so that was a kind of a storybook ending with a blip in the radar there in east lansing tell me tell me about your rose bowl experience because i as a as a college football fan my favorite thing to watch for sure um i always even i mean before i was even a big 10 student like the the rose bowl always struck me as like the greatest place to ever lace up a pair of cleats and step on the field. I mean, what was your experience like in the Rose at the Rose bowl? Yeah, that describes it. I mean, it's uh, if, if you've never walked on or seen the the turf there in Pasadena, it's think about your golf course as putting green. I mean, it's, it is manicured with, with eyelash scissors, you know, it is, mm-hmm. it is a beautiful thing. And uh, so yeah, to walk out there coming from the Midwest, you know, where it's either, in, in my day, either AstroTurf or, or long, thick grass. You walk out there, you're in California, you got the, the San Gabriels in the background, you got mm-hmm. the pageantry of the, the big press box and the bowl and the rows on the stadium. And, yep. and, and of course, from the time you arrive on a Big Ten or I imagine a Pac-10, uh, Pac-10 at the time, campus, it's, uh, you know, it's, that's, that's the goal. That's what's on your locker room wall. That's what's in your team meeting room, you know, whiteboard. So to arrive at that and to achieve that destination and, and, and really achieve that goal as a team, I think it brings you so close together. You know, anytime you're with a group of people and you achieve a goal together, it's, it's awesome. So yeah, it was, it was awe inspiring, but for me as a kicker, I think the most impressive thing was that turf, man. It was like <laughs> kicking off a putting green. You almost didn't want to touch it. You know, you can never go back. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious, well, when you were in college, did you have access to sports psychology services or mental coaching? It was, you know, it was just starting to come in vogue. And, yeah. and, and we had uh, at Purdue, we had a consultant that came up from Indianapolis from the St. Saint, Saint Vincent's medical team that mm-hmm. would come up and, and, and do some consulting. But we didn't have an in-house psychologist. Mm-hmm. I would say today, most of the Power Five um, programs do, probably multiple people on mm-hmm. campus. Um, so, you know, I, I never really utilized that service as an athlete. Although I was always interested in in that connection, that brain body connection, especially for someone like you know right. a kicker, it's 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 you know golfers, kickers, pitchers, the people that, mm-hmm. that do these repetitive things over and over, and you got to be kind of locked in and zoned in. And um, I can I can definitely see and value the benefit today, and wish I had you know wish I had played in an era where it was more prevalent. But um, yeah, it really wasn't yet in the late '90s, although it was kind of coming in. Okay. Did you ever go through a period in, in college where maybe you were going through a slump or something, or you felt like you're a little bit more in your head than you would have liked to be. And you went through a rough stretch as, as a, as a place kicker or a punter. Yeah, plenty. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I think, look, it's going to happen. If you play long enough and at a high enough level, you're going to have, you're going to have some, some lulls in your production. And, mm-hmm. you know, my sophomore year in particular, in, in particular, you call it a sophomore slump, whatever you give it a, a, a neat name, but um, I had a great freshman year, kind of came on the scene, was was a freshman All-American. Um, and then, you know, sophomore year wasn't great. Had a number of kicks blocked. Um, we went to the bowl game. We were in the Outback Bowl down in Tampa, Florida, mm-hmm. and uh, had missed three field goals and an extra point. 
Uh, we end up losing. We we're up 25, I think 25, nothing at halftime or 25, three at halftime. We end up losing 28, 25. Um, so that one's on my shoulders. That was a monkey on my back then heading into my junior year. But, but look, this is again, you, you do it long enough. You're going to have some days, right? Sure. And, and, and I think that's why that support network is so important. I was fortunate that, that my parents were in a position that they were able to travel to all games, road and home from Montana. Wow. Um, I think they, they own shares in Delta now because of it probably, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, you know, they, uh, they, they were there, they were a huge support network. And of course my on-campus support network. So, uh, it's tough. It's tough. You know, when you're a a kicker or a quarterback, I think all eyes are on you every play, you know, you're a, you're a left guard, right. Or an outside linebacker. You can make a mistake and the only people that right. see it are your coaches on film on Sunday. But, you know, I make a mistake and it, it changes the game. So um, that's a big it's a big weight on your shoulders. But also, you know, it's also a great thing for you because you do have an opportunity to make an impact. And I remember vividly a conversation I had with our defensive coordinator, Brock Spack at the time. He's now the head coach at Illinois State. And um, he said, look, man, you're, you're our punter. You're, you're, you're on defense with us, right? Because every time that our offense is three and out, you are going to dictate where our defense starts. So I need you on our team. I need you to be, you know, one of the guys on defense. And I need you to put us in a position to win every possession. So that really, you know, that was that conversation. Of course, it was more, more engaged and more lengthy than that. But, but that conversation really gave me a sense of ownership of like, look, I can, I can really affect the game. You know, average right. offense or defensive play might go three, five, ten yards, Special teams plays, you know, kickoffs, punts, especially they're going 50, 60, 70 yards. Yeah. No, I, and, and you know, I, I think I've thought of it that way, but I think when you tell a story about a coach who sort of, you know, incorporated you or sort of made you feel like you were part of the team, right. As opposed to just being, just being a kicker, right. Like being there by yourself on the sideline, right. That visual of the kicker just sitting alone by himself a lot of the times. But when you feel like, Hey, I've got a role on this defense. I'm a part of the unit. Um, that's got to help at least your confidence and feel like I've got someone's, someone's got my back here versus like, everyone's looking at me. And if I, if I make a punt, then I'm supposed to do that. If I screw up, then everyone's pointing a finger, right? Like, I don't think anybody ever wants to feel like that, but I'm sure there are plenty of times where you did feel like that. Yeah. You know, back to the the game I share with you, the the Outback Bowl, where I had that rough, that rough, rough day, worst day of my career, for sure. Um, but the number of guys in the locker room that, that came up to me and either, you know, just gave me a nod or put their arm around me or pat on mm-hmm. the butt and just said, look, like we're all, we, we get it. We're athletes. You have days, you know, um, that was, that was a big source of, um, inspiration and motivation mm-hmm. for me. Cause you don't want to let your guys down in the locker room. And, uh, and I did that day. So, so moving forward, you know, I was reflected on that. Like, look, they, they're not, they're not, they don't want to let me down. You know, I don't want to let them down. That's what being part of a team is all about. So, um, yeah, I think I, I think those those memories from the locker room are the same kind of lessons that we all want our kids to learn in sports. Um, and, and those are lessons I lean on today as as a professional, as an academic, as a as a husband, as a father, yeah. community member. I mean, these are the types of things that um, that you take with you from sports. Absolutely. So, so you mentioned your parents and their dedication to getting from Montana, which I can't even imagine trying to fly from Montana to some of the places you were at. It probably took them, you know, probably a day's worth of travel in some cases. Um, but, but what was there, what was it like growing up with your parents? Obviously you were very athletic. Like tell me about their role in your development when you were younger. Yeah. I mean, they were super, super engaged and, 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 
you know, I, I needed them. Every kid needs their parents to, you know, help them get, get through youth sports, especially at the earliest ages. Mm-hmm. You know, they're your, they're your nutritionist, your psychologist, your chauffeur, your launderer, right? They're everything to you. So um, they were the kind of parents that supported all of my passions, even when it meant, you know, driving hundreds of miles in a day all around the state to, to get from this soccer tournament to this basketball tournament to this baseball game, you know, back home for, for lunch and then off to training for some other sport. I mean, I remember vividly being in the car with my dad three, four hours at a time, you know, going here, there, everywhere to get to all the things that I wanted to do. And it, and, you know, for, for two working, working parents who had careers and were great at what they did to be able to kind of put that aside and make sure that me and my younger brother uh, were able to get to everything was, was great. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I have two kids now and so I know what, I know what that's all about, right? The the commitment that you make to get your kids to where they want to be and to support them. But it's also hard, right? When you have a job, but not only a job. I mean, I think nowadays two income families are pretty common and parents are sort of, most parents are doing it at some level. But I, I personally, and maybe this is my bias because of what I do for a living, but the emotional investment from parents in youth sport, which obviously has a double-edged sword, I think in some ways. Right. But, but talk about that. Like, you know, I don't know from your own experiences or, or even from the academic side, like what's your view about like how parents get invested in their young athletes career? Yeah. It's such an important question. Um, you know, I tend to look at this through like a, a behavioral economics lens, right. And, and to, mm-hmm. To boil that down into one sentence, I'm not doing the, the field justice here, but <laughs> to boil it down into one sentence, it's like, look, when we put money and time and energy and love into something, we want ROI. We want something, you know, some outcome, whatever that is. Now, now, parents across families and across communities, there are different outcomes that we all seek and value. But, you know, look, when, when if, if I drop $10,000 on my kid to play AAU basketball and go to a bunch of tournaments and go to some camps and get private coaching and strength training... Um, you know, and, and get supplements in the, in the pantry, all of this stuff. Well, I, I want something for that. First and foremost, hopefully we, we want a good experience for our young person in our house. Um, but look, we also want them to have an opportunity maybe to play in high school, maybe to go on and play in college. And maybe some, some kids even have the talent to go on and play uh, beyond that. But we all want something, whether we admit it or not. So the key is, the key is not changing our behavior as a parent because of what our goals are, right? So first and foremost, I talk to parents all the time about making sure that uh, that that your goals align with your kids' goals, your athletes' goals. And, and the way we do that is by communicating, by asking them, by talking to them, by, by being observers. The second thing is to, to not be having what I call grown-up conversations around them, right? The conversations with your, your spouse or partner that might revolve around money, like, hey, this is going to be tough to make ends meet because we got to do this. The kids don't need to be a part of that conversation. They don't need to know that you're spending $10,000. Mm-hmm. They know that you're invested. They know that you're there. They know that it's not cheap. Kids talk. They're pretty, they're pretty on it. They're pretty looped in. But they don't need to hear you know, the argument about money or the, the, the stress that's happening. You know, How are we going to get them here? How are we going to do this? I got to take time off work. We got to take out a second mortgage, all of those things. Because mm-hmm. ultimately, that leads to a perception then of, of pressure, right? The perception that, okay, Mom and dad are really into this. I better, I better do something to show them that I can succeed. Absolutely. And once they feel that pressure, they're going to enjoy the experience less and they're going to be less inclined. Actually, our research tells us to want to continue participating in the future. Yeah. So I, I and when you, when you were talking, I mean, I, that all resonates with me as a professional, as a parent, 
Um, the thing that I sort of always come back to in my own practice as a parent is motivation, right? Like, and that's essentially what you're saying, right? The alignment of goals. What's the motivation, yeah. right? Why am I doing this? And from the parent's perspective, right? Some of it's subconscious, right? Like I want the best for my child is sort of the outward way we think of this, right. but there's all these other things that keeping up with the Joneses, the scholarships, all this stuff that we may not want to admit to ourselves matter to us, but deep down they do. And that's where it influences the behavior. So it's so hard as a parent, I think, to separate, right? To say, don't change your behavior and not show it, internalize it so that the kid's not exposed to it. I think that's a really hard ask of any parent. And I think that that's kind of been maybe one of the biggest challenges we see in youth sport in general is that that inability to separate because the kids wear it so much. There's so much perfectionism that I see in my practice with every kid, whether they're 10 or 20, perfectionism is there at some level. Like I can't make a mistake. I mean, have you done any research on that? Or I'm sure you have a, a professional view on that. Yeah, it's really interesting. I actually have a grad student across the, across the hall here. Um, who studies perfectionism in, in young athletes. And, you know, I think it's, it's really, it's an interesting thing to think about like a chicken and egg type question. Does the perfectionism come first and lead one to be on an elite trajectory as an athlete? Or when you get on that elite trajectory, does that lead you to become more perfectionistic? And and this Mm -hmm. is, this is an ongoing question. There are multiple schools of thought around this, this construct. Mm -hmm. But what I will say is I, I think what we want to do as parents and even as coaches, community leaders and the like, is give kids some space to internalize the lessons that we just talked about from youth sports, right? So, so rather than talking about kids' behaviors and outcomes, talk about the kind of person that, that sport can help them be. Mm-hmm. And when they begin to internalize, oh, look, right? It's not, it's not, hey, you have to get up early to train. It's, look, to be the kind of person you want to be in life, getting up, an early, getting up early and training as an athlete will prepare you to understand the hard work that it takes to be a thriving adult. Mm-hmm. And so it's the internalization of the lessons from sports, not just the doing of the things in sports that matters, I think. Um, and that's really, look, I have a five and a seven-year-old. They're, they're at the very beginning of their journey in sports, but those are the type of things we want to do. It's not, it's not um, you know, don't slack off. It's, hey, I know that you're the kind of person that works hard. So make sure you live up to that value for yourself, right? So we're not, we're not talking about and criticizing the behaviors per se, but we're talking about the kind of person they want to be. Yeah. And my children are a little older, which it gets, I mean, as you might imagine, it gets a little bit more complicated as they get older because there's more competing demands. There's less, there's more autonomy on their part, or at least perceived autonomy. Like I'm older, like I can make my own choices, which as a parent, like I'm, in favor of, right? Like if you don't want to do this, I'm not going to make you do it because it's not going to be good for anybody, right? right? To go back to that, that behavioral economics, like if I'm spending thousands of dollars for my kid to play travel soccer and he's like rolling his eyes at me and he doesn't want to be there, like what's the point? What I tell my children is, hey, there's a consequence to every action. You don't have to do any of these things, but don't expect an outcome that you think you're going to get because you're not investing the time and energy that needs to go into it to be at the level you want to be at. And if you just want to be okay, that's cool. Like I still love you. And I think that that's something I'm really, that, that's sort of a working hypothesis that I always have sort of operate on with kids is that I think kids, when they're criticized by their parents, the default setting is, is like, you don't love me. Right. They're not saying that they don't think it, but they feel it. Right. Because then it becomes about the outcome. And so how how can we as parents, as practitioners, make them feel like, hey, 
you know what, there's ways to manage this as a young adult or young person, you know, because it's just life, right? We, our feelings get in our way. Our thoughts get in the way. How do we find ways to work through it and benefit from it rather than letting it over, overwhelm us and then take us down from a performance standpoint? And then it becomes the cycle of I'm not good enough. I can't do this. You know, I'm always, I'm always, you know, I'm not good enough. Really well said. I have nothing to add. No, that was, <laughs> no I think you're, I think you're on target with a, with a lot of that. Um, you know, and it, it, of course it varies by kid. Um, and there's a dynamic in the, in the right. relationship between yes. you know, dad and, and child or mom and child and, and vice versa. So I think we need to understand that, you know, some, some kids, some kids need, you know, uh, the yelling. Most kids don't. Some kids, uh, you know, some kids need the pat on the butt. Others don't. So I think we really need to understand mm-hmm. as parents, what is that dynamic with our child? Um, what is their dynamic with us? And then the broader context too, you know, what is, is it a recreation league? Is it a competitive league? Is it a travel right. league? Are they, are they heading off to college? Do they have aspirations to play professionally? So we need to sort of contextualize everything we're talking about. But I think our fallback should always be um, what we call UPR, unconditional positive regard. And that yep. is, look, I, I love you, win, lose, or draw. My kids are involved in in, in a few sports. Um, you know, skiing is their their primary sport, alpine ski racing. And and there can only be one winner. There might be 150 kids in a race. So if my love is contingent upon them winning, it's going to be a lot of no love flying around. Right? So, <laughs> right. so, you know, in sports like that especially, but look, even in team sports where it's kind of 50-50, like you got to love them the same in the car and at home, whether things go right or things go wrong. Let me share a story real quick about this because sure. back to that game that, that I told you about, that that Outback Bowl game. I missed three field goals. I don't want to go in the locker room, first of all. <laughs> and then when I'm in the locker room, I don't want to come out of the locker room to meet you know all the friends, family, parents, coaches, sure. wives, everybody that's out there. Um, but I come out and, and, and my dad just – he looks at me and he says, uh, uh, I love you, son. And – and I was like, holy cow, like, that's crazy. I shouldn't have been surprised. I mean, but, but I was in the moment I was like, ah, oh, we're going to talk about like, you know, what, what I could have done different, what, you know, what, what we're going to do next time. But that was the simple, the simple thing that I needed that he, he knew I needed in the moment. And I think that's a great, um, that's a great lesson, a great model for, mm-hmm. for all of us. I hope to be like that with my kids when they experience failure, which they will and have. Um, so, so yeah, I think that unconditional positive regard can be super powerful just knowing, and it goes all the way back to attachment theory in human development research. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, just knowing that. Look, I've got, I've got my secure base. I've got my people. Right. They're going to love me no matter what I do. Um, and uh, you know, I could get arrested for doing something stupid, and, and mom or dad or both or siblings, whoever my people are, they're going to be there for me. Um, just knowing you got that base is really important. Yeah, I mean that's a rabbit hole we could go down, and I don't think I want to. But attachment theory, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the idea that if you have a secure base, you can go out and take the risks that you need to take in any aspect of your life and feel like I can go out there, make a mistake and then come back. And I'm, I'm still loved. Um, and that's, and I think that applies to sports. And so it kind of leads me to sort of your, your professional interests in terms of academic interests, in terms of parent education, right? Talk to me about where you think the state, like the need for parent education is in the youth sports space? Oh my gosh. It's such a big question. It's really a career <laughs> defining question. You know, we've, we've done some of this. We haven't completely hung our hat on this coat rack, but um, you know, one thing that strikes me is that we talk all the time about best practices. 
And to me, best practices implies that there's sort of one right way to do things that we can kind of put everybody in this black box and say, do this and it'll be a successful parenting experience. I don't necessarily believe in that. And especially now that I'm a parent, even with just two children, I know that they need to be parented differently. And, I, and I'm a coach too, and a, and, a, and a club director. And I know that all the kids on the team need to be engaged with differently. So, so rather than best practices, what I like to talk about with parents is best principles. Um, there are a number of principles that we talk about, things that, that, that do sort of fit in this umbrella over the parent-child relationship in sport, mm-hmm. that we can give parents these tips, these tools, these strategies, and say, now you need to make this your own. Now you need to make this your family's thing. Um, you know, and, and I think when parents can do that, when they can understand what the science says, understand what practitioners um, w- would offer, and then kind of make it their own, right? But not subscribe blindly to someone else's philosophy, mm-hmm. then we're in a good place. So they have their their lighthouse, their north star, right? Their their sort of compass, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, it's got to be the family developing their own their own mantras, their own sort of engagement sure. practices, their own way that they deal with success and failure. Um, and then for each family that turns out to be a little bit different. Yeah. I, I, I love that. I mean, how much do you find citing the evidence or citing some bigger authority helps in communicating that message, right? It becomes less, I would imagine it becomes less personal and it becomes more objective for them, right? They're not taking it as a criticism. They're looking at it objectively and saying, Hey, what can I do with this information versus you're telling me what to do? That's right. I've, yeah. So Look, evidence is important, and I think everything we do, or at least that I do as a, mm-hmm. as a scholar practitioner, should be evidence-based. But at the same time, they don't want me you know, ripping off lines and then citing, citing my sources. <laughs> right? it's, they're, not a, they're not a research paper, okay? Right. So I think what I've found, at least in my experience, to be most effective with parents is to give them, give them examples and vignettes and stories mm-hmm. Stories can be so powerful. I mean, even with you, I've shared some of my stories. Sure. And then always in the end, come back to how and why that's a best principle for parenting your kids in sports. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, the, 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 the vignettes, the stories, um, they, they can be super powerful. They can draw parents in because exactly what you said earlier, it taps into their emotions. They've all either seen that parent or been that parent or seen an example of what I'm talking about. So it becomes more visceral. Rather than just, oh, hey, you should do A, B, and C and don't do D, E, and F, cite you know, Jones 2020. Um, that's, that's pretty dry. Um, it, doesn't, yes. it doesn't really move the needle in terms of their behavior. Yeah. Well, right. And that's one of the challenges we face as practitioners, right, is that fine line of, of taking what tends to be wonky talk sometimes and making it plain English for the people that we're serving, whether it's a young athlete, a parent, a coach, whoever. Um, and that's part of the art of what we do, right? It's not, it's, it's, it's combining this, the science and making it, you know, digestible for people who don't want to like glaze over when you're citing research papers. <laughs> that's right. I mean, look, if you're working with, you know, if you're working with a fairly affluent family from Long Island, right. um, let's say, a, you know, a, a, a white affluent family from Long Island with a kid at a prep school, three sport athlete, that's going to be a different family context than if you move, you know, down the shore, uh, some number of miles and get a inner city kid from the Bronx with a single mom who's working three jobs and he's at a New York city public school. Um, these are different contexts and they must be treated differently. And that doesn't mean that we stereotype or generalize. What it means is that we try and understand 
each family in their context and, and deliver the needs that they have. Well, and I think that's one of the biggest challenges, right? In the sense that in the, in America, right. And I'm sure you, you've studied this or I'm highly aware of it, but like when you go outside of America, everything's nationalized, right? So there's sort of a top down approach in America, everything's decentralized and it's the bottom down, the bottom up approach. Right. And so what make, what becomes really hard is, is this idea that, you know, we're trying to give people these principles, but the principles are coming from the bottom, right? There's Travis in Utah, there's Mike in New Jersey, there's, you know, Mary in Maryland and Joe in California, right? And we may all have a similar approach, but it's not the same set of principles. So can you talk about sort of the challenges about the way youth sport operates in America in terms of educating people in a uniform way? And it just becomes a sort of mishmash because there's so many things going on. It has been traditionally. I think there are a number of groups. Um, one that I was involved, I was a member of the science board um, for for this group with the Department of Health and Human Services, and they mm-hmm. put together sort of a youth sport, um, a youth sport consortium of sorts, mm-hmm. really to try and um, centralize, to borrow your word, um, our understanding of youth sports, our design and delivery of youth sports. Um, that's, that's had some success at various levels. I think another grassroots group that's doing some great work out of, out of DC is the Aspen Institute. Yes. Uh, you know, they're really focused on, they've come up with a number of what they call plays. And again, these are strategies that, um, that communities, that coaches, that parents can use to engage young people, um, in sport in a more effective manner. So, you know, I think we're seeing now more of kind of what I'll call a sandwich approach where there kind of there is some top down. There obviously remains some bottom up with the hope that we can meet in the middle and understand some of what these best principles are that I've been discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, one of the problems we have here, I think, it, not, it's not really a problem. It's just a barrier that we need to overcome yeah. and, and really address is that, look, we've got what we might call free play. Then we, the next level up, we've got sort of recreational or town leagues, the next level up, you know, we've got maybe school sports, we've got, um, you know, sort of travel AAU type, you know, ODP soccer, these types of travel kind of quote unquote elite performance opportunities. And then of course we've got participation in, in intercollegiate athletics and, and only in America is sports. So yoked to our educational system at the, at the junior Mm -hmm. high, middle school, high school, and college levels yep. that we really are a very unique case study in how sports is designed and delivered. It, it doesn't happen that way in the rest of the world where everything is club based. Um, you know, and, 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 and so you join a club in whatever sport or sports you want to be in there, there really isn't like that community programming. There definitely isn't that school programming. So, so it's, it's, it's also decentralized. And I, th- I have some experience in Germany. I have some great colleagues in Australia and the UK. Mm-hmm. And they talk all the time about, how look like you pick a sport, you join a club and you're part of that club and, and they, you know, they deliver sport to you. And I think we, we can both learn a lot from them and they can learn a lot from us. Uh, I think there's some value in both systems and neither of us are doing it perfectly. Yeah. But you know, look, there's a lot, there's a lot, I think that we can be doing better as a country and much of it boils down to parent engagement. And uh, you know, look, I've got, I've got some job security here, I think for the next 20 or 30 years. <laughs> Yes, in, in my career, but ultimately, in the way our system is designed here in America, we can't do it without parents. So what we can't do is put up a wall and say we need to exclude them. They have to be part of the solution. Yeah, we have to bring them in. We have to involve them. So, 
So yeah, that's I mean, they're the consumer ultimately, yeah. right? They're the they ones. <laughs> and I think, you know, where I should have finished with that is, look, because they have to be involved, this is why education is so important. This is yeah. why a number of groups, ours included, are working on uh, parent education. So so if and when they're involved, they can be doing it in the most appropriate way. And and yes, I think this is something that sports sports leagues struggle with all the time. There are two consumers. There are the child to whom we're delivering the yes. product, and they're the parents um, to whom we ha- we have to keep them happy about the way we're delivering the product because they are paying the bills. Right. And that ultimately comes down to communication. I think you said it before, right? At the end of the day, everyone's going to have a different agenda, right? It's sort of a loaded word. And they're going to have a different communication style and they're going to have different objectives, right? But if we're communicating with each other about what we're trying to achieve, we may not always agree, but we can work towards common ground. When there's no communication, that's where things really kind of hit the skids. Totally. Um, I get, I think, I think the other question, the other piece of this, and I'm not sure how um, involved you are, but I'm sure you have a view on it. Coaches, coach education and where the coach is coming. Cause that's something that, I mean, I'll just speak anecdotally, you know, the lack of skill and awareness and knowledge of the coaches in, in that I see in my area is really disturbing uh, in terms of, not, not even the skilled stuff, right? The, the on-field stuff, on-court stuff, people get, I think, for the most part. It's to go back to what you were saying, the ability to relate and assess and tailor coaching to an individual, I feel like is sorely lacking. So like, what's your view about the role of coaches and coach education in this sort of big picture? Yeah, coach education is so important. And I think we, we being the United States, do a great job of this at the higher levels, right? When you think about the the national governing bodies that fall under the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee umbrella, right? I think there's 56 of them in all across all different sports. Nearly all of them, I think, I've, I've interacted with many of them, but nearly all of these NGBs, I think, have somebody that's in charge of coach development. Um, and they do a great job and they try and do a job top down of educating coaches. But of course, most of the resources, when you think about, you know, the USOPC and what their aims are, most of those resources are going to the elite levels, the top of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. So what are we doing now for the the coaches that are coaching our, our U8s and our U10s? You know, I'm of the mind that that actually we, we, America, again, we tend to push all our best coaches to like, oh, let's get them into the college. Let's get them into the professional yeah. ranks. Get them our best athletes. I tend to think that we should be having some of our best coaches at the bottom, yeah, to build right. the base of the pyramid. Um, now there's no pay in that. So there's, there's a barrier that we would need to overcome for sure. Um, but, but another way we can think about it is sort of a, a, a trickling down of, of knowledge of, of wisdom, of acumen, um, uh, you know, a sort of a mentoring philosophy where yeah. these, these coaches at the higher levels can mentor the coaches at the younger levels. Now, right. I think with this, within the school systems, some programs do a great job of this, right? Like the high school coach will be mentoring the junior high coaches. The junior high coaches will be mentoring the Pop Warner coaches. Yes. So that system, if you will. Yeah, exactly. That system will sort of make its way up through the ranks. Um, But look, we rely, we rely on a system of youth sport, especially at the recreational level where it's, it's parents that are coaching. Yep. So I tend to think about coaching and this is where some of the, the coach education research has gone most recently as really having three prongs. And that's kind of the, the the technical and tactical prong, and that's like that's what coaches do, right? right? But then the other the other two prongs are in interpersonal. So how do you relate with other people, right? The other coaches, the parents, the kids, the fans, the refs. 
So the interpersonal side of it, but then maybe what's most neglected is the intrapersonal, right? Knowing thyself. Um, and I think it might've been Plato who said that first, not in English, but I'm not sure exactly, <laughs> but, but it's so important for a coach to be reflective yeah. in nature, to be introspective, to know mm-hmm. where their strengths are, where their weaknesses are. And I don't think we do a great job of instructing coaches in that way. Yes. For instance, I mentioned I'm, 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 a, I'm an assistant volunteer coach with our, um, with our Alpine ski race team here in Utah. I have no background. I was not a ski racer growing up. I played a number of other sports. I played sports at the highest level, but I was not a ski racer. Mm. So I, I understand the limit of my technical and tactical knowledge. But I also know where I can really imbue myself into the club, and that is with the socio-emotional, with the child development, yeah. you know, with the parents, really bringing that to the table. So, so yeah. knowing thyself, knowing what I bring and what I don't bring, and then filling in other people around me to, to do what I can't do. Right. Yeah. That's the way that's, that's, that, that encapsulates my participation as a, as a sport coach, uh, you at the youth level. Right. And I, I, I find that I'm a better coach when I'm in that sort of secondary role. Like I coach assistant soccer coach for my daughter who's 11 and I don't know much soccer. I know enough soccer to be an 11 year old soccer coach, but I'm really good. I think at communicating with the kids and helping them understand their feelings and put things into perspective and deal with mistakes and sort of understand the bigger picture in terms of, you know, coaching decisions and things like that. Like that matters, right? Like technical, tactical is important, but it's not the only prong to your point. And I think a lot of coaches just, they don't willingly neglect it, but they de-emphasize it naturally. Right. And so it's like, it's always about who's playing where, where are they playing? We need to sub this and that. And meanwhile, you got some kid with a, you know, a face on the other side of the field and you don't even recognize it. And that's really what's contributing to poor play, not the shape of the formation. Right. right. And and I think there's a lack of awareness. Right. And sometimes it is the self-awareness of the coach. And I think a lot, you know, I'd be rich if I had $5 every time I heard a coach say, well, that's not what they're paying me for. Um, you know, I think, I think, look, we're, we're, we're in a, a time in society now where we have to think about things more holistically. Mm-hmm. We have to think about athletes beyond their athletic performance yeah. um, and understand that they are, I mean, gosh, especially 11 year olds right there. They've got school, they've got family, they've got siblings and friends, they've got homework, they've got lunch, they've got, you know, every, they've got social media, they've got everything they're doing in their lives. Sport is but a small part of that. And so mm-hmm. it needs to remain integrated into who they are part of who they view themselves as. And that's the way that we get them to come back when they're a U12, when they're a U14, you know, and then ultimately when, look, you mentioned sports were over for you in high school, but we don't want kids to stop being active when they're done with high school. We want them Correct. to go on and find, you know, intramural opportunities in college and physical activity opportunities and model that for the next generation and become coaches and referees. Um, so, so look, we, we need them to love the experience. Yeah. And to continue and, and to continue to compete into adulthood, right? I think that there's, I mean, I think you have that experience, right? You're a tri, are you a triathlete, is that right? Yeah. Right. And and I've competed, you know, I've run run a marathon and I've did a powerlifting competition. I played baseball for 15 years after college and you know got back into it. And I love it, right? And I think a lot of people, once they leave college at 22, if even if they were intercollegiate athlete, they look back on the glory days, but they never conti- they don't go on to continue to compete. And that's not the goal, right? The goal is to keep competing, not only for your mental well-being, but for your physical well-being, to be a role model to your kids, all those things. And that's built, the foundation of that is built in, you know, the teenage years when 
you know, experience of sport for of sport or towards sport is shaped. Absolutely. You can take the cowboy out of the mountains, but you can't take the mountain <laughs> out of the cowboy. Right. And I think the same is true in sports, right? You can take yeah. the athlete out of sports, but you should never take the sport out of the athlete. And I think that really speaks to really speaks to the way that, you know, you, you imbue this into a sense of who you are, your sense of identity that look, I'm an athlete. It, it might at some point turn into, I'm a former competitive athlete, but you never stop being an athlete. So right. uh, again, and that fits really nicely. I think with the philosophy I shared from the get go today, which was, you know, I, I, as a professional, as a husband, as a father, as a mm-hmm. community member, I rely on all these lessons, right? I'm still, I still think like an athlete uh, when it comes to putting in hard, hard work, hard hours at the office, or when it comes to the, the lessons of, of being a dad is just like being a coach. Um, so, so you never, you never lose that. It's really important. Yeah, I would agree. Um, so I guess as we wrap up here, if you had to give one piece of advice to a young person, young athlete, just one thing, what would it be? Wow. That's a, that's a big question. We're, we're talking kind of here in the sport context, right? So like, yeah, you got a young athlete, yeah. ideally, but okay. I mean, I think, I think the, the first thing, and this is what I tell my kids all the time, because they're, they're very invested already as seven and five year olds in their, in their skiing and really in their other sports as well. I mean, they are, they are athletes in every sense of the term. Um, and I tell them all the time, love it, right? Love it. And I think that speaks to this idea of internalizing the passion that it's their journey and not mine as dad. I don't want them just feeling like I'm dragging them up, you know, Mm -hmm. to training or to a competition. Um, I want them to own it. I want them to love it. Um, in fact, I, 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 I'm not perfect at this, but I try and ask them most days when I pick them up from school and we're headed up to the mountain to train, I say, Hey, you guys, do you guys want to ski today? Because I want, I want their buy-in. I want them to say yes, because once they say yes, the buy-in is there. I don't want to just, I pick them up, they're in the car, you know, whatever they're reading their book or they're on their iPad or they're playing a game they're drawing, whatever they do to kill the half hour up to the mountain. I don't want to just, Oh, dad picked me up. Now we're going to do this because dad wants us to do it. I want them to own the experience. So, so for me, um, I want them to love it. The flip side of that coin is I want them to know that I love that they love it. So I tell them all the time on the chairlift, like we're between runs or whatever. I just whisper over in their ear, man, I love watching you guys ski so much fun for me. Um, cause I want them to know that I'm having fun because they're having fun. Um, and I think, and look, anytime, if I tell you right now, man, you're, you're, you're the world's best broadcaster podcaster. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. We, we we all like to be told that we're good. Of at course. Stuff, right? Like, yes. And, and we want it to be authentic, of course. But you know, when our spouse comes home and says, man, you know, you're, you're a great dad. I really appreciate all you do. Or, you know, and I tell her, man, you're, you're a really good mom. You know, you're doing a great job. Like that makes you feel good. So our kids need that as well. Mm-hmm. They want to be told because they're putting so much work into this right. and they're doing it in many cases to make us proud as parents. Yep. So they want to be told, man, I see you. I see you putting the work in. I love watching you do it. That would be my, that would be my takeaway for parents. Maybe. I, I think you're the, actually, uh, I, I did a podcast, I recorded a podcast that's going to drop next week with, uh, do you know Josie Nicholson at Ole Miss? I don't know. Yeah. She's, so she's in sports psych at Ole Miss yeah. and that's exactly what she said. She said, love it or get out. That was sort of her one point. So two for two on that from the, from the former athlete sports psychologist in the, <laughs> on the show. Um, same question, but for parents, what's the one thing or one piece of advice you'd give to a parent? Um, leave it all on the table. You only get one shot. Um, it seems hard. seems like, uh, 
man, I have, I have work I should be doing. Uh, you know, I, I'll share a story. Let me frame it. Go, absolutely. Stories, stories and anecdotes are the best. Yep. So I was out at ski training with the team the other night and, um, one of Josie's friends is a U10, a little bit older. And, uh, and she was out there skiing and her dad was in the lodge working on the computer. And I texted him between chairlift rides. I texted him. I said, get your butt out here. I said, the work will be there tomorrow, but you only get so many days to ski with your daughter. We do our lap. She does her next run and he's there waiting at the bottom of the chairlift dressed and ready to go. Big smile on his face. He's like, thanks for reminding me. So I think, look, you get, you get one, you get one trip being a parent and, uh, make it count. So I'll buy that as a parent. I love it. So thank you for coming on, Travis. I, I follow your research, love your work. Um, I think we're speaking from the same book here in terms of what we view to be important, you know, about youth sports and what parents and kids are doing. So, um, I think this is going to be really valuable for the, anyone who listens to the podcast. And I, I appreciate you getting on and, and sharing some of your time to, to talk to me. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And uh, let's stay in touch. And definitely for all your listeners, if you want to check out our website, we're just families in sport lab, uh, .usu.edu. So check out our work. Awesome. Thanks so much, Travis. I'll talk to you soon. Appreciate it. So what was your biggest takeaway from my conversation with Dr. Travis Dorsch? For me, it's that there is more than one way to be a successful sports parent. We must understand the basic principles of effective sport parenting. However, what's most critical is to study our children in order to understand exactly what they need from us. My suggestion to sports parents is do your best to put yourself in your child's shoes. Of course, we want to guide them to success, but sometimes doing so requires us to appreciate their perspective and take our hands off the wheel, so to speak. I want to thank Travis for his kind generosity and the wisdom he shared with the Freshman Foundation community. You can learn more about Travis and his work at familiesinsportlab.usu.edu. To learn more about how mental performance coaching can help your mind work for you rather than against you, visit michaelfeasandvincenthuber.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you back in two weeks for episode 33. Mike Huber is the founder and owner of Follow the Ball Coaching, located in Fairhaven, New Jersey. He is a mental performance coach and business advisor dedicated to serving athletes just like you reach their full potential on and off the court. The Freshman Foundation is all about helping you get to the next level. For more information, follow along on Instagram at the Freshman Foundation. Please subscribe. Give us a like on iTunes, Spotify, leave a review, tell a friend. Most importantly, come back in two weeks. Ready to get better.